Hello beautiful people and thank you as always for clicking on this podcast in this episode of Joe Blogs About Films. Welcoming you back whether you're a first time listener or a long time listener or the same. It is greatly appreciated and thank you for your constant, constant support. Now in this episode we're going to dive back to the Monsterverse to the 2019's entry, Godzilla King of the Monsters in this revisit episode and kind of retrospective, giving you my thoughts on it as a whole, bit of details, bit of trivia, blah, blah, blah. You know the drill. This is now my fourth Godzilla podcast on Joe Blogs About Films. So I think you can kind of get the idea just how much this character means to me. Loved him since a very young age and I really do love seeing him on the big screen. And King of the Monsters, you know, understandably after the after the success and 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 as much as, you know, I, I loved the, the, the 2014 release, this was my one of my most anticipated films of that year. You know, I was so impressed with what Legendary did and what Gareth Edwards did with the approach and the production of the first instalment from 2014 that, of course, I was looking forward to seeing what was next. And to be honest with you, it was quite extraordinary, really, just how big of a time gap there was between the films, you know. Given the success of how Gareth Edwards' first flick did, it received super, super well, it grossed so much money at the box office. You know, they even managed to squeeze in a new Kong film in between, which I am quite a fan of and... I would be very, very surprised if I wasn't to revisit the Skull Island film on the podcast in future. So I, that's me saying, yes, it will happen. Because I really did like Skull Island as a film. I think that both Godzilla and Kong Skull Island are the best entries in the MonsterVerse. And, you know, King of the Monsters, though, like in its build-up, it was throwing some major punches, major punches. Like there were some great names attached to this, like Millie Bobby Brown was added to the cast list after the mega success that, of course, is Stranger Things. And this was actually her first film debut. Again, as a Stranger Things fan, I'm like, yes, like, I can't wait to see what she does in this film and what her character's going to be. la di da da Also, Vera Farmiga as well, I'm such a fan of, was attached to this. And also, Kyle Chandler, who's done some great, great work. And I was just like, yeah, this, this looks like it's ticking a lot of boxes. I was, like, kind of surprised that maybe some of the other players from the first one, you know, your Aaron, Aaron Taylor-Johnson and... Elizabeth Olsen sadly weren't returning, but I, I guess they were kind of going for like a different approach, a different story. But we did have, you know, in addition to these newcomers, there were familiar faces that were going to be in the film, obviously of Ken Watanabe and Sally Hawkins. And I will go into more a little bit more detail with these two characters later on because it does, oh, it pains me what they did to these characters in the film. Like, I don't want to get too distracted, but yeah, I was really, really, really just like, oh no, what have you done? But still, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about them uh, in, a, in, a, in a short while anyways. But other than all the, the actual human characters that were cast, the big, the big announcements were some of the other kaiju and characters from the Toho world that were going to be making an appearance in this film that had me so, so excited. Like, I think it was Comic-Con 2015 or 16 or something like that, the first footage and pretty much the announcement of the other monsters that were going to be players in this film were released, you know, and I think this is when Gareth Edwards was first still attached to the film, but I've not seen the footage because it was strictly just for Comic-Con, so I, and I don't think any hero has ever leaked it or anything like that, but I think it was, from from what I understand, some kind of like monarch, monarch tape and footage of these other monsters, obviously, that, that were going to become key players in this film, so not only were we going to get Godzilla on the big screen again, but we were going to get Mothra, Rodan, and King Ghidorah, in this film, like honestly, I, I was asking everyone to pinch me at this announcement. I was like, "Is this is this legit happening? We are actually getting some other great monster titans, whatever, in this film." Like it was, they're iconic, you know, huge monster icons in an Americanized Godzilla flick. Like, come on, like it just 
just make this a success. Like, please make this a success. And, you know, further ahead a few more years, I think it was Comic-Con 2018, like, on the back of the first teaser that dropped for this film, it looked like it was set to be amazing. Like, it looked like it was going to be incredibly successful. Visually, especially, you know, some of the sequences that we were shown just looked so stunning and gorgeous. Like, I... I loved this trailer, you know, like the it was aided as well these visuals with these fan, the fantastic music based on Claude Debussy's Claire de Lune, and it added so much more to the trailer, you know, given that spine tingling and goosebump reaction that I absolutely adore from trailers in the first instance. Like I genuinely love loved what this trailer did, and I spoke a lot about the Comic Con leak trailer from 2012 in my Godzilla 2014 podcast. And how that's like imprinted in my brain as one of my all-time favorite teaser trailers because it, it really was, and I guess that comes from a, a, a kind of a, a place of hype and like I can't wait for a new Godzilla film. But this this trailer is certainly up there, and it's just a shame when you look back that on reflection, the trailer is way far superior than the film <laughs> itself, and that's a crying shame because given what we were shown in those sequences that Comic Con, like I, I, I people surely remember that dropping. It was uh, such a re- remarkable trailer. I, th- I, mean, I remember the amount of praise that was going into this trailer, the 2018 Comic Con one that is. Yeah, it had me hyped, but sad to say that the film didn't live up to the, uh, <laughs> didn't live up to my expectations, nor the trailer. But before we do dive any further, of course, the podcast is available on Apple, Spotify and Google Podcasts, rss.com, wherever you get your podcasting fix from, it'll be there. So again, thank you if you're already streaming that and liking it, whatever, if you've hit notification. That's amazing. If you haven't done that already, please do so, so you can be notified when new episodes are uploaded. Alternatively, jump onto Facebook and Instagram and search Joe Blogs About Films. Give us a like and a follow on there so you can see a my ridiculously huge steelbook it's not that huge but ridiculous steelbook collection but also keeping up to date with the podcast itself and also yeah just uh, let me know your thoughts as well on film suggestions recommendations what you think of the podcast i love a good chit chat so let's get that sorted and set up hey right then so godzilla king of the monsters this film was say released in may 2019 and in the five years since godzilla battled the mutos in san francisco the mega lizard has been laying low but when monster organization monarch start testing the orca a device that broadcasts on the monsters titans frequencies it triggers the re-emergence of all kinds of ancient beasts now, the film itself had a budget of 170 to $200 million, and it grossed $386.6 million. So it made a nice amount of money. It got the money back, but not as much as the first film, because that grossed at $529 million. But to be honest, like I say, $386.6 million, it's still a nice, sizable chunk, so you can see already that there was enough there to play with to go forward and go, right, we can make more of these films. Because obviously after the huge success of the first Godzilla from 2014, I think they already greenlit two films instantly. They wanted to make it into a trilogy. And originally, I do believe that Edwards was pitted to come back and do them all, basically. Like, they wanted him to come back. Now, this is one of the things that I, w- I was really disappointed with because I stated this. Gareth Edwards was slated to return as the director for this sequel. And though he did state that he was happy with the first just being a standalone, citing that I want a story that begins and ends and you leave on a high note. That's all we cared about when we were making this. It's just just this film. If this film is good, the others can come. But let's pay attention to this and not get sidetracked by other things. And you can say that they, that Michael Doherty, obviously, who took the took the director's chair for this film, kind of did the same in this as well. Like you could, there's an argument other than the post credit stinger. You know what I mean? That this does feel like its own complete story, that if they were to have left it, it wouldn't have necessarily mattered. It's just obviously where they were world-building and the studio were really kind of going for it. This whole universe thing had 
Oh, it just shot up, and let's be honest, since the bloody Marvel, you know, cinematic universe and such, you know, you had the Universal Dark universe that was trying to get going as well, which ultimately got canned. But th- this one was quite a success, you know, so they were going to carry on moving forward with it. But it wasn't to be for Edwards with Godzilla 2, as he ultimately decided not to return for the sequel due to the other due to other projects, that being Rogue One. And with that announcement, uh, and with the announcement, sorry, of Legendary's big plans for this trilogy and bringing Godzilla and Kong together... They probably needed to get cracking, I think is what Edward said, rather than waiting for him to finish his Star Wars duty. And I think straight away, this should have been a red flag for me. I think I was kind of caught up in the whole Godzilla new film coming out. Okay, let's, let's you know. I, I remember I remember being disappointed that Edwards was stepping down because I thought what he did with the first one was just a stroke of genius. But like the Godzilla fan in me wanted this to be a worthy sequel and at least some form of success, especially, you know, given that Legendary had gained and secured rights for three other big Toho characters for the sequel. And that's not me saying that the film isn't a success or wasn't a success, and and, and, and as it, it did make a nice amount of money, but I don't think this was the sequel that I was expecting nor hoping for. It just really did feel incredibly underwhelming. Um, with no Edwards attached, though, obviously the studio, as I stated, then turned to Michael Doherty. Again, I wasn't too familiar with him or his work, but I did catch his second directorial feature from 2015, which was called Krampus, which, again, I'm sure people out there who listen to this will have seen that film, and I thought that was really good fun and a good horror comedy. And so I was looking forward to seeing those kind of themes and what he brought to Krampus, you know, rolled over into, into this new Godzilla. But maybe I should have been a little bit more apprehensive because he wrote the story for X-Men Apocalypse, which came out in 2016, and let's be frank, that is trash. But <laughs> has spells, but it's a trash film. And that kind of sums up my my feelings, I guess, for King of the Monsters. Like, it has good spells, like, really good spells, but overall, it's such a dip in quality when comparing to the gorgeous work that the team behind Skull Island did and a serious dip in comparison to Edward's Godzilla. Like, it does feel... Like, I've said quite a few times already on this podcast that King of the Monsters is my least favourite film in the, the Monsterverse. You know what I mean? Like, I do think this is weak, especially given how much and how good it could have been you know I think that's why it's even more underwhelming you know what I mean but I I think that the main issue in this film is that way too much happens like and just a heads up straight away like I this is it's one of those where I always try to look at positives and such and and because I'm not going to go hard in on this film because there are things that I do really like and you are going to hear positives and such that I do like about it but mainly so I think it's going to be more of me just kind of like oh I wish they'd have done this so heads up on that front because I think we're going to go down that route with this revisit but yeah basically too much happens there's way too much going off in this film like the monsters the humans the globe trotting da 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 like it's there's just not enough time to digest any of it and there's so many underdeveloped characters in a big scale monster movie like having the character having too many human characters is a problem as it is but having ones that are so underdeveloped is even worse like added to the fact that as well these characters are pretty garbage like there's no depth whatsoever whilst on top of the monster carnage it just makes you feel like this film is just a big mess like the characters are constantly explaining their motives and feelings towards godzilla or the monsters or the world itself like and at times what they're saying they contradict themselves throughout the film like they believe in one thing, but then they act on the other. They do something completely opposite that. Like Kyle Chandler's character, Mark, he is a prime example of this. And I'm going to come to him again more in, more in just a tick, but he is definitely the worst for this. But that's the problem is that you have too many characters trying to have so much to say that after a while of constant exposition, exposition, you're just like, I just, I just want to see monsters, man. Like, And I think this is the thing as well, is that the other side, the other flip is that a lot of people complained about 
not enough Godzilla action in the first film, obviously the 2014 one that is that I think the amount of screen time he gets is under 15 minutes, which less is more. I don't care. I don't mind. I've, I've, if you want to hear my thoughts on Godzilla 2014 and my gush and my love for 2014's Godzilla, go listen to the podcast that I did a few, you know, a few months back and such. But I loved that approach. Whereas this, it was like, oh, well, God, the fans didn't like the fact that Godzilla was hardly in it. So let's just throw everything at it. Like we're talking in the first 10 minutes of the film, we've seen him, you know what I mean? Like he's there, prominent. He's, he's, this is his film this is it. I just, I didn't like that they went for that. Like I really felt like they were just too, there's too much fan service at times, which isn't a bad thing, but I really felt like in terms of the action, legendary and maybe even Michael Doherty were just like, let's just throw everything at it and just see if it works. But I think one of the biggest flaws as well is like, like someone like Charles Dance being in this, like his involvement, you know, like a phenomenal actor given scraps to work with for his character. So his character, Jonah, is a former British Army SAS colonel and an MI6 agent who defected after being coming uh, disillusioned by humanity during his time in service. Like his character is obsessed with leveling the global playing field and restoring the natural order. Like he became the mercenary leader then of an uh, of an anarchist eco terrorist group funded through the trafficking of Titan DNA. Jesus, that's a lot, isn't it? Like holy hell! In terms of like. That's the thing is like, we, I, I don't think we actually learn. I, I don't even know if we actually learn that or not, but that is just way too much. to and, and such a, such a kind of, I don't know, like over the top, like reaction, I would say to the world, you know what I mean? Like, and the whole plot of him and Vera Farmiga's character, Emma, who have conspired together to essentially unleash the Titans to the world and basically restore it due to mankind's damage to the planet, like allowing the Titans to set things right. It's such a jump, like a remarkable jump, that to be honest, like I don't think it worked for me as a main as a main film plot. I was like, are we really, are we really doing this? Like I I love this idea of Monarch and having their fingers in all these pies of different monsters, this and that, and what they've got tied with it. But to have this story of someone genuinely wanting to unleash that, I mean, yes, you're always going to get the bad guy in the films that wants to do that. But again, like I don't think there was enough. Like Jonah turns up, it's like boom, 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 fire out, right? I'm taking this orca. We're going to unleash all the money. Like there's just, it's just honestly, like a hundred miles an hour. The film is strange with its pacing because it feels like it starts off at such a fast paced trajectory. Like we are on it. And then I remember in the cinema, it got to a certain point. It's kind of around the mark when you think that Godzilla, not, he's not died obviously, but when he's first defeated kind of thing. There's a, there's like a a thirty minute period of just nothingness and boredom. Like it just it's such a strange one with the pace, but there is such a jump with some some of these characters and especially like the decisions and creative decisions of yeah, let's have someone that's gonna just go out and decide the world's crap, the world's gone to shit. Let's just release all these monsters because that's gonna make it ten times better. It's such a bizarre one. Like it could could have gone with anything else, but fair enough, whatever. Let's go with that. But like I think that. I do think that there is like the concept and idea, like it, for the foundation of the story, I get what they were going for. Like, in, and it is a nod to the nineteen ninety one film Godzilla versus King Ghidorah. But having Vera Farmiga's Emma Russell, her character, then go down the path of, oh well, let's wipe the world, let's wipe the earth clean, this and that, and blah blah blah. It just, I just, it's just not one that I would have thought personally that that felt the film would have taken. You know, it's not a route that I thought they'd have gone down. But hey. Here we are. Now, the other characters and performances in this film, they're not exactly grand either, let's be honest. They always seem... It always seems with the human characters that at every perilous moment, Godzilla ends up turning up to like save the humans or something rather convenient occurs to save the lead protagonist. The only really good performance from this film on the human side, I would say, is Millie Bobby Brown. And she's not really got too much to, to, to kind of 
flex her acting muscles with anyways, but I do think that she's the only one. And again, this could be coming from a Stranger Things bias perspective, but I think that she has a fair bit to run with in this film. You know, she's got a, she's got a strained relationship with both her parents caused by their feelings towards the Titans and in particular Godzilla, because we learn right off the bat at the start of the film that the, the events of Godzilla 2014 caused the death of her character. That's Madison, her younger brother. So the son to obviously Famiga and Kyle Chandler's characters, the son's passed away straight away. So we're getting this... We get that this event has split all the characters on different paths, which has caused a huge breakdown in this family, and now they're all suffering differently. You know, they all suffer, and they're dealing with this differently. It's weird, though. Obviously, you got that, but then they still created a machine together. You know, Vera Farmiga and Kyle Chandler—they created this machine, or should I say, a plot device known as the Orca, which can essentially mirror and talk the same to Titans, like it gives them the frequencies, this and that. That's what's pretty much used for global destruction in this this whole film you know that's the machine that's going to unleash the monsters and there they go off they pop but like it is interesting that they made this kit considering the damage and loss that they encountered due to a month it's just you know what i mean like where's where why anyways carl chandler's mark russell again is very flat and at times he too is quite two-dimensional like he's got a pure hatred towards godzilla and wants nothing to do with monarch or the titan itself or any titans whatever believing that they all should be destroyed and you know that should be it let alone letting them roam free willy-nilly but then as i mentioned earlier he contradicts himself so many times by then rushing after Godzilla are trying to help him in numerous occasions in this film. Like, I know they want that journey of him understanding that actually Godzilla isn't the enemy, but boy, oh boy, do they rush that along. Like, it is so, like, flippant with the decision and, and his character making those kind of decisions. It's so bizarre, but there, there's so many good ideas and stuff that they could have gone with with his character and that, but I just really just didn't. I just I wasn't that, that much of a fan, which is like... I was kind of glad to see him get a bit of, you know, kind of pushed, not pushed to the side, but he didn't have the biggest role in Godzilla versus Kong. Neither did any humans, let's be honest, in Godzilla versus Kong. But I, I guess if I was to try and look at a, if I was trying to take a positive from Kyle Chandler's character and that whole kind of, you know, viewpoint of the Titans is that it is nice to see, at the start of the film anyways, like a polar opposite of how, like, Ken Watanabe's Dr. Shirazawa feels towards Godzilla, you know. He believes that the outdated theory that wolf packs in the wild are dominated by an alpha who earns a position through fighting and physical intimidation, which is, again, a nice little foreshadowing for the Titans themselves because, as it turns out, they follow the same dynamic. Godzilla is the Titans pack's rightful alpha with, you know, Mothra as another alpha in a symbolic relationship with him and such, but King Ghidorah is a rival alpha who does command the other titans loyalty after defeating the apparent killing of godzilla so there are like characteristics and stuff in there that do kind of work i do like that 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 being the foreshadowing and such but again i'm only knowing all of this through like exposition dump do you know what i mean like and, and then by putting those pieces together be like oh yeah they do actually do so like there's ties straight away with like even though carl chandler's character mark doesn't like godzilla and the titans his like kind of relationship towards animals and such is it's not the same, but it's like, oh, actually, well, they're no different. You know what I mean? But the other characters that I want to mention, obviously, in this film as well, from the last two are, of course, Ken Watanabe's Dr. Zerazawa and Sally Hawkins' Dr. Vivian Graham, both working for Monarch, and Zerazawa being one of the founders of Monarch. And to be honest, I would say that, yeah, definitely Watanabe is one of the better parts of this film. He was fantastic in the first one, but I'd say he was pretty good in this. Not as good as in the first one, but yeah, he's given a, a pretty good all-round story you know more so given the perfect ending for his character like a beautiful moment for his character that spent all his life 
devoted to Titans, and in particular Godzilla, you know, sacrificed himself to give Godzilla an extra life pretty much with the nuclear explosion deep in the underwater temple. It really was like a great moment and one of the more emotional ones. And this is the thing that like I really, really like struggled with in King of the Monsters is that it lacks so much emotional level and heights that the first one had. Do you know what I mean? Like I know that there's times where you're like oh, it's a bit cheesy, the first one, like the, the, the relationship between Aaron Taylor-Johnson and Elizabeth Olsen. Like, I personally didn't find it that. Like, And again, that's probably me looking from... But no, do you know what? I'm not even going to try and... I'm, I'm going to stick with it that I did like that relationship as much as some people thought it was like crap or whatever or just didn't seem believable, should we say, that there was enough in there for me to be connected to them on an emotional level. Like, I wanted them to succeed. I wanted them to get through this horrible event and be reunited. Do you know what I mean? In this film, in Gods of the King of the Monsters, I couldn't give a rat's ass who died or who lived. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I really, really, there was nothing, no connection whatsoever. You have so many characters in this film and zero care for any of them. That, to me, is a problem. Like, if, we're gonna, if you're going to have that many human characters in there, at least let me care for one of them. You know what I mean? Some of them. I ju just anyone. But I will say that, that the Ken Watanabe, obviously Dr. Serizawa's, uh, sacrifice is one of the more emotional moments and gut-punching moments of the film. In comparison to what happens to Sally Hawkins, who clearly drew the short straw in this, like, I'm unsure if this was due to scheduling conflicts or something else, but she's hardly in this film and, and is given next to nothing to do and ultimately getting killed off in a blink-and-you'll-miss-it moment during King Ghidorah's breakout scene that really left the bad taste in my mouth. Like, an absolute waste of talent in this film there's so many so many fantastic performers in this that are given next to nothing like they i do not understand how when you have someone like sally hawkins part of your cast that's coming from the first one why she wasn't given such a bigger role why couldn't they have focused on monarch and maybe as much as i love vera Farmiga, did we need any of the, that that subplot of the whole family dynamic and the whole eco just why couldn't we just structure it something around sally hawkins and so you know what i mean like i really found it so like I, I, I thought, I thought as a fan, anyways, I felt like it was a slap in the face because I felt like they'd done so much and they'd created so much and world build and character developed with her character and 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 Ken, Ken Watanabe's in the first one. Like to kill her off in that manner, I thought was just a real, real like just a a waste basically. And I don't want to get too caught up in it, but that's another reason why the film drops massively for me, anyways. But anywho, enough about characters. Let's get to Titans and some monster action because the film throws an awful lot of us, and that's what we're here for, let's be honest, you know. So I I'm gonna come to some of my favourite sequences in just a mo, because to be honest, there's not that many in this film, but I wanna quickly you know, I say quickly, but I want to go over some pointers on the main three monsters, the other monsters that is, other than Godzilla, that are featured in the sequel. Now, as I've said earlier, I was bloody ecstatic that we were getting some other big names in this film, you know. And what's ace is that Doherty gave each monster a sequence of where they're discovered reflecting their personality, you know, in some in some way, anyways. Like Mothra, rainforest full of mystery, beauty and nature, Ghidorah, Antarctica, desolate and cold. Rodan is a volcano, obviously, somewhere tropical where the primal world made sense. And the film also explores more into the Hollow Earth aspect. Not as much as, obviously, what Godzilla vs. Kong does, which is a real jump, but still, you know, it dips its toes into an explanation of sorts. Now, when Doherty was asked if the Hollow Earth civilization that prays at Godzilla's altar was, was new to mythology, or if it was an inversion of something he found going back to the Toho films. He stated that if you do go back and look at the entire library, 
There are sort of occasional references to lost civilizations. Mothra's followers are a perfect example, and so are Kong's followers. Mothra's eggs tends to be housed in a mysterious temple surrounded by a singing and dancing trope that's always trying to get her, get her to hatch. So these creatures have a long history of being perceived as gods and deities. So it made sense to me that the alpha of the group himself would also have a history, a deeper connection to some ancient civilization that figured out how to spark and maintain a sort of symbolic relationship with him, probably for their own protection. The same way there are small fish that swim underneath a shark or the tiny bird that pecks insects off elephants or rhinoceroses, human beings would be the tiny animals that seek protection under a much larger animal that simply puts up with their presence. I love all of that. Like, like Doherty clearly has, like, a vision there. Like, just run, just run with that, you know? Like, don't... Don't put in rubbish characters, you know. All of that sounded glorious, you know. And and this also explains why the inclusion of that underground temple was used. It's to illustrate that Godzilla has had encounters with mankind before, and that he and that he doesn't see them as a threat due to how they've worshipped him in his past. Like I, I like this law. I like all of that aspect of it. It's just a shame that in that moment, I remember sat in the cinema going bored really really bored you know what i mean like that that was part of that moment where i was like where's the pacing gone it's all been kind of stripped out but i do like i do like learning about the background and i also like that we get to see where godzilla goes when he does dive underwater like that that's something that doherty wants to bring to the project you know and i and i praise him for that that's one of the things i do like about it i just think that overall i wouldn't say the execution was necessarily done in the right manner for the entirety of the film. Anyways, let's get back to some monster action, because Mothra, obviously, she is known as the Queen of Monsters, and within the film, Mothra has her own folklore and fairy tales that, according to Monarch and the viral campaign the film had, tell the stories of a winged creature of a blinding light, an angel of the clouds, whose godlike luminescence has the power to shatter the sky. So she, like Godzilla, isn't necessarily a threat, but an ally for humanity. On reaching adulthood, Mothra's gigantic thorax is capable of emitting better-wave bioluminescence, which can be projected through the intricate patterns on its wings and weaponized into blinding god rays. As one of the deadliest and most beautiful natural phenomena in Earth's history, it's easy to see why Mothra was worshipped by the ancient human civilization. Furthermore, with Mothra, like we get straight away that upon hearing that alpha frequency for the first time, as she does in the film, she reacts more with like curiosity rather than intimidation or anything like that. Like she's it's like intrigue, you know, as to what it is that the humans have have put towards her, or put upon her, we should say. Like not only is Mothra unaffected by it because she's an alpha by her own right, it's also revealed that the humans use Godzilla's calls to create the alpha frequency. So it mixed in with some human vocals as well, and that's calming her down because she was hearing something that she's familiar to a male counterpart. Like I say, she's the queen of the monsters, and Godzilla is obviously the king of the monsters. Um, I believe as well that the screech in the film for Mothra is a modified version of original sound from the Toho series, something that, again, the team did excellently well with Godzilla's roar. Like, Doherty wanted to emulate the same sound as possible as the one used in the 1954 film. And while I'm on that as well, I think it's really cool that what they did with, obviously, Godzilla's dorsal fins and such, that like they made them look really, really like exact to what they were in the original 1954 films or any previous films since, because most of the, the well, obviously, in Godzilla 2014 and Godzilla 1998, the fins and the plates and such, they were quite, like, just straight up, you know what I mean? So it was nice to kind of see that 
that arty kind of look for them. You know what I mean? Like it just looked wonderful. Like I'm so happy they got those those particular plates back for him. Anyways, and I'm I'm waffling away as you can see. Jumping though to Roden, his origin in the film. I I don't even know if they really go over it that much because it's not very clear. You know, as much as we know about the other monsters, obviously with Ghidorah and 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 Mothra and Godzilla and such like. But he is, I think, presumably an ancient creature due due to what we see in the ancient cave paintings that we got like in the post credit stinger from Godzilla King of the Mon- from from Kong Skull Island. Sorry that then do appear obviously in King of the Monsters, but like the similar paintings exist obviously of, of all the Titans, suggesting that Rodan either appeared alongside them in the past or as it's prophesied to appear alongside them in the future. According to Monarch, Rodan is spoken of in legends with his name referenced within many ancient temples in volcanically active regions. And according to their lore and such, obviously in the film, that is in 1991, Rodan was discovered by Monarch um, in the magma inside Isla de Mara volcano in Mexico. Rodan has also a system of magma that flows throughout his body. And again, in terms of the design I loved Rodan. I wish, to be honest with you, like I think that one of the things I remember saying to my dad when we saw this film was is that I don't think they should have necessarily used all three of these monsters because I'm going to come to King Ghidorah in just a second. And I think that yes, fair enough, you could you could keep King Ghidorah in there, but like I I I would have loved to have seen more of Rodan. Like I think that Rodan really he kind of comes and goes, doesn't it? And this is the problem because you've got so much going on. There's only so much screen time that the characters and the monsters are going to get, and that's a real shame because you have so many in there already. But I I love the design of Rodan. I thought he looked really great. I I like this whole thing of like this having you know like having this magma and and like almost like ash and smoke like wherever it kind of flies like the back end of its wings and tail and stuff having that lit just ever so slightly like like you know when a fire is about to burn out and such like having that lit so you've got this kind of like flow and such of smoke it just really looked effective and i really did like what they did with Roden. it's just a shame that he only really got one good sequence which is one of my favorites of the film in the actual breakout from mexico and such so Maybe take Roden out and they could have saved him for a later film or something like that. But I guess that if you're if you're from like a, a film studio perspective or whatever, they're probably thinking, let's just like we we've only got so many films that potentially are gonna like after after Godzilla vs. Kong, the next installment, that could be it for us. We might never get a chance to kind of do this again. So let's throw everything in there and just see if it works, kind of thing. So I don't know. Like I I personally would have maybe saved Roden for a later date, but taking nothing away from from what we get of him, because he is part of, like I said, one of my favourite sequences of the film. Now, let's get to the main villain of this piece, the rival alpha in this story, King Ghidorah. I bloody love the design, and honestly, like, what an introduction to his character. Like, more on that in a second, because we're going to go over some favourite parts, parts of the film in just a tick, but holy hell, did I love the intro of King Ghidorah. Now, originally, Ghidorah was going to be the antagonist of Godzilla 2014, would you believe? Like, in an early script and an and early yeah, draft of that, Ghidorah was going to have crashed in the Arctic and, and, you know, during the last Ice Age, being kept frozen in, in a particular mountain, and Monarch would be then discovering it. Um, before then, obviously, escaping and fighting Godzilla in San Francisco. But Gareth Edwards removed him because he felt that Ghidorah, being an extraterrestrial being, did not fit the film's theme of Wrath of Nature, uh, something that worked super, super well for the first film anyway, is that whole, like I say, the arrogance of man is thinking nature is in our control. You know this. You know You know the line, the quote. But, like, he took it out because he didn't want to take anything away from that theme, but also, I believe as well, he did it to avoid similarities um, with Transformers that came out in 2007, but I, I couldn't really. I, I think is that is it was it yeah was it Megatron that that ended up in um, 
in the ice or something. I don't know anyways. Those films get a bit of a blur after a bit. But yeah, he, Ghidorah, like, it's a shame that he never got into the, obviously in the first one, but I'm so happy that we do get to see a form and iteration of him in the sequel, you know, like the the detail of this design and such, and even within Monarch and such, when we get to see like those cranial scans in the film and such, like it does indicate that each of Ghidorah's heads possesses different levels of function and, and like independent thought. Like the middle head is is the, is the more intelligent one acting as the alpha while the left and right are kind of just say just akin to it. And we see that in the film as well when it's kind of like snapping at the other two and such when they're like investigating or kind of wanting to go in for an attack or something. It's just the middle one is always in charge, you know. And I also thought that the motion capture that the team did for the monster were really excellent. Like, you can see some very good behind-the-scenes footage of them performing away, which, again, hats off to the team for bringing this huge, huge monster to life. Like, uh, I think that a fan as well asked Michael uh, Doherty on Twitter that how how did Ghidorah end up trapped in the ice in, in, in Antarctica in the film? And pretty much just Dockertage replies, and it was Godzilla. They fought and he thrown and you know threw him into the Arctic, and Godzilla won. Basically, that's that's how that's how he got there. And unlike the Mutos and Skull Crawlers that that were you know simply animals acting on instinct, what makes King Ghidorah so terrifying is that he is genuinely you know malevolent and sadistic, and he has a plan. You know, he's got an actual end game, a strategy. He's got motive. It makes that creature really terrifying as i say like added to the fact as well that this monster can regenerate heads due to its alien nature it's almost like it's like an impossible end of level boss to defeat you know what i mean which is why it's such a powerful moment in the film when he does defeat godzilla and is the new alpha like screeching at the top of that volcano whilst lightning and lava and smoke is crashing all around him fantastic spectacle a one that I was genuinely applauding the cinematography. Like, I can't fault some of the imagery and some of the cinematography that you get in this film. Like, it is really, really excellent for cinema goers and for film fans and for Godzilla fans as well. Like, you can't argue against it. It's just that the film is trash. It's just, it's just that's the best I can believe. The film is such an underwhelming uh, sequel, you know what I mean? But again, I, I will always applaud some great visuals, some great special effects. And I think that the team behind Ghidorah did an absolutely fantastic job, you know? My favorite sequences. I think most of them in this film do involve Ghidorah, like in particular the moment, as we've just spoke about, when he breaks out from his icy chamber. I thought that that silhouette of the creature stuck within the ice is really great, like a really great shot. And the whole sequence is joining the team, you know, set him free, so intense and so like, you know, like edge of your seat stuff, waiting to see the big, the big Titan unleashed. But the actual reveal, you know, of once he is released and everyone's looking over the hole as the ice and the, the icy smoke and lightning, you see the yellow lightning sparks from Ghidorah from, from, from the depth, you know, that that's all kicking off to then slowly seeing this creature rise up. It's, it is quite astonishing. And one where again, like I said, I have to commend the CGI and special effects here because even like if the film is underwhelming or whatever, like the one thing I can't take away from this film is, is the, is the gorgeous special effects. Like it really is a show reel of how well things can be done on a huge scale. Like another moment as well involving Ghidorah is the final battle between he and Godzilla. It is just wall-to-wall destruction and a brilliance again from the VFX team. Like it's carnage, you know what I mean? Like having them start their fight in the baseball ground to then have them crashing all around different buildings and skyscrapers, it's just brilliant, brilliant view. And you do think about all the people they probably stomped on on the way, but that's that's if you're trying to take it from like a different perspective angle. But you know what I mean? Like I, I do I do think it is really, really entertaining. We also don't get as much cutaways in these sequences as we did in the first film. And again, I spoke about it earlier that 
audiences were like, oh, it wasn't enough Godzilla. Or da, da, da. Like it was just like the start of the action, then they'd cut away. Like audiences were complaining all about that. And then, I mean, I didn't mind it, but this film, it decides it's like, nope, you're going to see it all. Like we do get maybe some kind of brief cutaways where, but, it, but it's always like cutaways to another angle of the action. Like we might be on a plane again or a jet or something like that, rather than it starts and then we cut away and it's just like we're back to like Elizabeth Olsen or someone from the first one. But again, I didn't mind any of that. I liked what Gareth Edwards did with the action and the monster stuff because sometimes in this, even though like you are enjoying the spectacle of Godzilla, you know, (laughs) fisticuffs with King Ghidorah, it does get kind of blurry and that's when you know the CGI is not really up to scratch. But like I say, most of it with the film, CGI-wise that is, is pretty grand, you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, like I I, I, I I, didn't mind, I say, the cutaways as I was talking about. But yeah, it's something that obviously they worked on in Legendary were like, we're not going to do that again. So yeah. Anyways, to be fair, like all the fights with the two kaijus, like I say, are really great. From the battle in the in the Antarctic to the to the one in Mexico, and then again at the end, really strong. And we have the background that these two monsters have met before, you know, that there is some form of rivalry between the two, and not only because Doherty, as I say, confirmed on Twitter, but it is established through the cave paintings and such that we've seen in Skull Island, and again in this film. His relationships with the other kaiju however are pretty much unknown this is godzilla that is like maybe less so with mothra i think that's that they've they've definitely got some form of bond as i say it's king and queen you know but we don't really know too much about him with the other monsters mainly that obviously his rival is king Ghidorah. now i'm also quite a fan of the color palette in each of these fight sequences because there's a lot of blue used in this film and it's heavily used in the final act added as well is the use of rain like water is actually a big part of the film you know like you have that moment of rebirth or baptism should we say of godzilla for like when he's brought back thanks to monarch and ken watanabe's you know dr series hour and then again at the end with the rain almost washing away all the sins of every character you know human and monsters that is you know it's giving them all some form of redemption so i did quite like that touch but yeah that again very very limited in terms of what i did like in this film <laughs> we also get some wonderful sequences including Rodan. i've already spoke about Rodan and my love for this design and wish that there was more of him but like as the winged beast you know he's chasing monarch you know the jets of monarch that is you know he's he's swooping and flipping around as it flies hitting jets with its wings in the process and taking them out like i love the wide shot from the back of this bird as it's flying quite low to the sea with its wings and tail, just grazing the water ever so slightly, and then really hitting a trajectory to fly upwards. This is all the while the Monarch team as well are leading Ghidorah in the storms right towards Rodan, or vice versa. I think it's they're leading... They're doing both, anyways. They're leading Rodan one way and Ghidorah's coming the other. So it is a great aerial battle between the two, you know. And in addition, within this moment, when one of the fighter jets, uh, one of the fighter pilots, sorry, ejects from his seat it's then like swallowed up. There's a great in-your-face moment of Rodan just eating him up, gobbling him up, and it's such a great chuckle moment for me. And this is the thing, it's that I want more of that. I want more of Rodan, man. Like, I was really, really disappointed to not have him, you know? But anyways, I think that covers all the monsters on that front, but let's go to Godzilla, because according to Godzilla, the art book, um, I think it was called The Art of Destruction, which came out in 2014, the Godzilla corpse that was found in the beginning of that movie would have been discovered frozen somewhere in Siberia instead of the Philippines. So obviously, as you can remember, in the first film, there's like, let's say, a very ancient Godzilla skeleton, but they changed it all because of Man of Steel. The film, I think, came out a year... Yeah, came out a year before Godzilla did Man of Steel. It had a very similar scene where Clark found... Um, the Kryptonian ship frozen in ice and that was the kind of reason why they reworked it in, in Godzilla because they didn't want and, and well, they, didn't, they didn't want to do it so soon after what happened 
in obviously Man of Steel, they didn't want to kind of see like the ideas were like copied. So instead they flipped it and didn't have Godzilla frozen. Instead they had Ghidorah frozen in Antarctica. Uh, and Godzilla in this was designed to have the personality that, that would evoke the last samurai archetype and to be like a lone ancient warrior in content and with solitude and preferring not to be part of the world, but has to resurface when certain types of events force him to appear and set things right. And again, this is something that the first film did and they continued with this in the second one. And this is one of my other things as well that like kind of another nitpick of this film is that I almost feel that like the first one was kind of like a, a blueprint of how to then do the sequel. I, what I mean there is, is that this feels like a bit of a reboot and I, and, and it's not obviously because it is a sequel, but because of the gap as well between the 2014 one and the 2019 one, it's almost like, I think the studio were relying on audiences not remembering anything from the first one or something or having no interest in checking out this or even trying to appease fans that weren't pleased with the first one. You know, I feel like that's also the feeling I got with this is that, yeah, we got those couple of characters, like you say, Ken Watanabe and Sally Hawkins from the first one, but it did overall feel like a brand new film. It was a brand new film, but you know what I mean? It felt like a remake or retread slightly of the first one but it just felt like they were just starting from scratch is what i'm getting at waffling away in some stupid capacity but you know what i mean it just felt like they were really going on things that worked. they took the things that worked from the first one and then decided right let's just pretend that didn't happen but we'll go with this do you know what i mean like in addition one of the things that i loved about the first one was obviously the opening title sequence with like kind of like you know the news clippings and such and being like blacked out and stuff like the text being removed and stuff like the end credits for king of the monsters mimicked that opening credits from the previous movie like like i said whiting out various words the obscure credits and scientific journal articles and photographs and headlines blah blah blah. like it very appropriately all comes to lead us to the next installment of the monsterverse as well the big showdown between kong and godzilla as the audience again treated to another cave painting of the two characters fighting against each other like huge speculation went around this as well at the time as it pretty much insinuates that, like Ghidorah, Godzilla has had previous with Kong. And then, like, I wish that this film made me more excited for the Godzilla versus Kong film, but if anything, it made me a little worried as to what they were going to do. Like, I, I just, I, I loved the idea and the concept of bringing these two giants together again on the big screen, because it's been the first time since, like, the 50s or whatever it was, or 60s or something silly. But, like, uh, with how this one went, I was a little bit like, well, it depends who you're going to get in the director's chair, because for me, like, the, the only, you know, Gareth Edwards or, I forgot the gentleman's name who did Skull Island, but Either of those guys, probably I'd have been a bit more like hopeful about it. But yeah, I, and and, and so I'll, I'll do another revisit on Godzilla vs Kong. I don't think it's all that bad. I think it's, it's it's decent enough. It's just a monster film, and the but again they learned from the mistakes of this one where they were like, let's just not have all these terrible human characters. You know, let's just focus on the monsters and their journey and their story, and that's fine. I'm fine with that. It's just that like from where the MonsterVerse started with the Godzilla 2014 to where it's got to it's they all feel like godzilla 2014 does not fit and and even skull island i would say does not fit the two sequels that followed do you know what i mean i'd love to know your thoughts as well on that listener so do let me know um what you think on, on the actual monsterverse itself but we also get at the end as well a post-credit sting which reveals obviously the head that came off of king Ghidorah is then given to jonah and his character and I was like under the impression that this was going to lead to Mecha Ghidorah rather than Mecha Godzilla. Spoilers for obviously 
Godzilla vs. Kong, but if you listen to this podcast, I'd imagine you've seen them all. But, like, I did get it half right with the Mecha, obviously, just the wrong Titan. Like, And I do like the idea of having Joan and the crew being given the decapitated head of Ghidorah. However, it was just a huge shame that, given the build-up and the significance of his character, you know, he wasn't involved in the sequel that followed. I, I felt that Mecha Ghidorah would have been a better antagonist for Godzilla vs. Kong to kind of be like... Let's let's be friends, you know what I mean. But taking nothing away though from Mecha Godzilla, like I, I watched, I've watched to see Mecha Godzilla on the screen for years and such. Like that, you know that that was great, but it could have been held off, and you know Mecha Godzilla could have been used for for another time, and they could have gone with Mecha Ghidorah instead. You know, I, I've said Mecha way too many times. I am Mecha lost right now. <laughs> like yeah, but you know what I mean. Anyways. All in all, like from all this waffling and from what you've taken from this, you can see that what my overall thoughts are of Godzilla vs. Kong, and I've not really gone maybe into too much depth of it per se, but this sequel does have flaws, like it has a lot of flaws. And at the time, it was such a disappointment for me as I found it slightly too long, also just overbearing and overstuffed with mindless monster action at times. Very, very, you know, massive stark contrast to the very well structured and thought out process that Gareth Edwards did with the first one. And yes, Michael Doherty is a huge fan of Godzilla. Like, I love that he was able to go nuts with this film. You know, much like Edwards was a huge fan, Doherty was an even bigger fan. This is probably why it lacked depth. It just felt like someone had been given free range to do whatever they want to do to make a monster film of their dreams, you know. It is admirable, though. Like, at the same time, it's so admirable that he was able to just be like, right... I can't wait to do this. I want to do this, this, and this, and this. I think it's great that he was given the opportunity. But at the same time, I think by doing that, the the, the direction was lost completely. And that's why, for me, the film is just... It's just very weak compared to the first one. It's a 6 out of 10 for me. Like the, the Visually, though, I can't fault it. Like I say, we get some great monsters on screen. The special effects are wonderful. Like I say, all of that. But it's not enough for me to be like, oh, yeah, this is like a, a top-quality sequel almost better than the original like far far from it it dropped so so much for me and this is why out of everything that you probably listened to me waffling about already it's why this film is um yeah the least favorite of the monsterverse for me but that's just me i'd love to know other people's thoughts as well what you think of godzilla uh king of the monsters and all of the monsterverse films for that front that's godzilla done godzilla king of the monsters done we still have and also you can go back and listen to my second ever podcast here uh godzilla versus kong which probably will sound terrible so do if you want to but i will definitely look at doing a revisit but i do also want to do a revisit of kong as well so looking forward to putting all that together but i just want to say a massive thank you once again for checking the podcast out it really does mean the world if you're a godzilla fan like i say let me know your thoughts on this film but until the next episode thank you again take care